What up fam, I'm Elena, a certified nutrition coach, personal trainer, and hormone specialist. I'm a former public educator turned holistic fitness coach, and I'm on a mission to disrupt diet culture and educate individuals on how they can heal their gut issues, hormone imbalance, and food relationships caused by chronic dieting, inflammation, and autoimmune or chronic illness. My philosophy for coaching is simple. Eat more, move better, feel amazing, because life is too short to feel like shit. So let's dive in. Welcome everybody to episode 33 of What the Funk. This is Q&A part two. And you, you guys really brought the heat on some of these questions. I was so excited to do this. Now, what's funny is I actually meant to post like all of this in one, one episode, which after I saw all the questions, I was like, yeah, that, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I mean, I guess I could if I made it like an hour long episode, but just from a like analytic standpoint, those don't do very well. So I wanted to make sure that the work I did actually got to the ears that it needed to get to. So we're doing this in a two part. And on the last episode, we talked um, hormones, basics, met metabolism basics, metabolic rate with Hashimoto's and other autoimmune considerations, hormone friendly and gut friendly foods, um, libido and managing. PMS, which that was, I mean, those were really great conversations. I was so excited to go over all that. Like when I tell you guys, I nerd out about this stuff. I really nerd out about this stuff. And when I'm not like actively in like a certification program or studying something, I'm usually listening to podcasts, reading studies, compiling research of my own for application and consideration for my own clients. I like, I'm reading books when I just tell you that I am just an absolute sponge for knowledge and information. And I just get so excited when I learn more and I'm able to connect the dots more and then find ways for it to be um, realistically and safely applied to the coaching practices that I that I partake in and what I do with my clients and helping them kind of overcome a lot of this stuff because let's be real let's be real functional nutrition has become kind of a buzzword it's sort of like cool to be the person that deals with hormones and while I am so happy I'm seriously so happy because there needs to be more coaches out there to support people because there's so many people that need this level of support that aren't getting it because they don't know how to access those resources, right? It's just one of those things where I, I'm glad there's more people, but, but, but <laughs> a lot of people are, are opening themselves up to marketing themselves specifically, right? And because I'm, I'm a business owner, like let's call it what it is. I'm a business owner. I talk about, I think about marketing. I'm very strategic with the information and everything that I share because I want it to be effective and I want it to help spread the word and yes, grow my business because I, I plan to have as big of an impact as I possibly can. Um, that when you, when you market yourself as a functional nutrition coach who deals with hormones and things like that, you best be prepared for every single person walking through your door to have one or more known issues or being on the cusp of sort of just realizing they have a lot of shit to figure out and they really need somebody to sort of walk them through how to advocate for themselves. What should they do? Because Google is overwhelming, right? There's so much information. And then what information do you apply? And in what order do you apply that information, right? That's, that's why coaches exist. We help take all of this sort of the what, the how, and the when and make it make sense for the individual as well as what their like life constraints are, right? Like the strategies I'm going to give somebody who is a work from home mom is going to be different from somebody who has like a, like a corporate job that they're leaving the house for. Um, and somebody that is also a mom is going to get different recommendations than somebody who's not a mom, right? Or if somebody has, um, oh, you know, other things going on, there's, there's, people's lives make a difference, right? Not, you can't do cookie cutter shit. And that's why sometimes 
sometimes when you find this information, it can be a little overwhelming. And it's like, I feel like I know what I should be doing, but am I doing it? Is this the right move? And also from a medical perspective, right, I really support my clients with medical advocacy because so much about Western medicine treats our individual systems separately when they don't function separately at all. The adrenals affect the thyroid, affect your sex hormones, right, affect your insulin and uh, insulin um, response and energy management, right, and influence your metabolic rate. Everything's connected. And sort of my job from the functional perspective is to help educate my clients on how this is all connected and how they can best advocate for themselves with their medical providers. Providers, and that is a piece of what I do because medical advocacy is a learned skill. It's not like an innate knowledge that people have. Um, it's something that, you know, I had to learn it the hard way. I didn't, functional coaches didn't exist when I got my diagnosis with Hashimoto's, you know, back in shit. 2016, something like that. Like, and Instagram was just kind of barely a new thing too. So it's just like, wow. Um, the amount of knowledge that's available out there now and the amount of people that are, have the skill set to help is amazing. Um, but essentially what I was going for this is, uh, I was super excited to talk about all this stuff because I really, really, really love it. I don't just like market myself as a functional coach because <laughs> I think it's the cool thing to do. Um, I do it because it's really a passion of mine and I want to help people that were maybe in a similar position that I was in, you know, back in 2016, 2017 and trying to figure this shit out. And, you know, I still learn even so much from my own coaches and mentors over the last like three, four years recently. And, uh, yeah, so it's a good time. So when I would say I was so excited to get these questions and and then also just knowing that like my people clearly have found my page, that there's people that are wanting this information and they're somehow in my community. I'm like, I, this is, I'm doing something right. Right. This is very like affirming in my life's purpose and like choice to move forward being sort of a solopreneur, doing this and just hoping that I can have some kind of impact, right? So the questions today we're going to cover um, are very exciting regarding uh, a lot of menstrual reproductive health. So hormonal acne, PMDD, perimenopause, postmenopause. Um, and then we're going to dive into a little bit of insulin resistance and insulin resistance with PCOS, um, which I'm very excited about. And then we're also going to talk about things to look for in blood work. And then I had somebody ask about ozempic for weight loss or some glutide for weight loss, especially with insulin resistance um, and PCOS. So here we go. Let's go ahead and get started. I'm scrolling. I've got all my notes up because I like took all these questions and I organized them. And then I made some points on like, okay, I need to talk about this. I need to talk about this. And a lot of these topics are, I'm going to just kind of really go over sort of like a, like an overview of them. A lot of these things are going to probably end up as like separate episodes down the road because there's so much more information than what I'm going to share here and considerations that we just don't have time, right? Trying to fit this in like a 30 minute podcast. So hormonal acne, how it starts, how to address it. So the main causes of hormonal acne um, are going to be stress and sleep, right? Stress is a huge factor when it comes to just your hormone overload and how your body purges those additional hormones, because we're talking about the clearance of hormones. Our ability to manage environmental toxins is directly related to our management of stress as well as oxidative stress and the clearance of hormones, right? And so sometimes stress and lack of sleep can really play a big factor in the health of our skin. Um, you know, and we, and so that's the first thing you guys are going to hear me talk about stress and sleep a lot. If you've been around, you know, I talk about stress and sleep a lot. I, if you're my client and you're listening to this, you're going to be like, yep, we've talked about stress before. She's mentioned this and I need to start paying attention when she says it. Because I feel like a lot of times people, whether it's my clients or people in my audience or just people I talk with, and I'm like, yeah, stress. And they're like, yeah, cool. What about this other thing? And I'm like, stress. They're like, yeah, but the other thing. I'm like, okay, well, I mean, you can do what you want and like, I'll follow. But stress has to be addressed. Same with sleep and sleep quality. 
Um, and so sometimes I harp on my clients with this a, a lot and I bring it up on a consistent basis um, because I'm like, this this is a root cause type of thing, right? Managing stress and sleep. For skin specifically, also we have to look at skincare products. Um, you want to double check that like obviously all of the things that you're doing are non-comedogenic, comed comedogenic, they're not going to cause blockages in the skin. Um, digestive issues can also have a huge impact on skin, not just necessarily with hormonal acne, but with flaky skin, with rashes, things like that. That sort of links back to the health of your intestinal lining. If you have high levels of intestinal permeability or what is commonly coined as leaky gut syndrome, you can have a lot of skin issues manifested in various ways. Um, hormonal shifts related to your cycle can also spur some hormonal acne. And if you're having those really extreme hormonal shifts, um, that can be related to your sex hormones, which is a usually a sign of hormonal dysregulation, as well as food choice, right? Um, processed foods right? Audit how many processed foods you really truly are eating. A lot of people realize that they're not eating as many like fruits and vegetables as they think they are once they actually start to really look at their diet and the choices of food that they're making, right? Knowing that in this case, whenever I say diet, I'm talking about um, not an intention to um, live in a smaller body or control your body weight, but the uh, food choices that you make on a daily basis. That is your diet. Your diet is just simply the food you consume. That's it. That's it. That's all it is. Um, and so, um, you know, a lack of nutrients can really cause a lot of problems, especially again, it kind of links back to that hormone clearance. Um, making sure that you're increasing vegetables, especially green vegetables is going to be really important. And funnily enough, <laughs> not to sound like too cliche, but chocolate and dairy products, remove that for one to two cycles and see if your hormonal acne fixes itself or at least improves. Um, I have a couple clients where we're working on their hormonal acne specifically is an issue that they're wanting to address within their coaching and actually have them take progress photos of their skin so we can compare it from cycle to cycle what their skin looks like during the different phases um, so we can really get an idea if, if what we're doing is working because that can be a sign of progress a lot of times is okay we're reducing the amount and severity of the hormonal acne presenting in the skin that's huge all right PMDD premenstrual dysphoric disorder like PMS, but on steroids, basically. Um, now, technically this is a hormone imbalance. It is an endocrine disorder, but it manifests really severely on the mental health side of things. And the treatment usually involves treating the mental health, which again is avoiding the root cause, which is a hormone imbalance. Um, hormonal birth control is also often prescribed, which it's important to recognize that hormonal birth control was never developed to regulate the body. It was literally developed to dysregulate the body, to disrupt normal hormone patterns. So adding something that was meant to disrupt on top of an already imbalanced system can cause a lot of issues down the road. And if you want to listen to, um, I have an episode um, called What Your Doctor Didn't Tell You About Birth Control. I want to say it's episode two. And I did that with Chris Alejandro of A1 Fitness, which was a super fun episode. Also, I'm going to have some more content on hormonal birth control. I've got an episode plan that's going to be about birth control and brain fog and just like that mental aspect of being on birth control which I'm very excited about. Um, and so what ends up happening is a lot of people with PMDD sort of get lost in this mix of they go to their doctor because something's wrong. Cause what do you do when you don't feel good? You go to the doctor and that's a totally normal pathway to follow. And their doctor is slapping a bandaid on something and it's not fixing anything. And they're still just caught in this like sort of cycle of <laughs> issues. So I would really kind of address, you know, how to, and the next question was how to support PMDD with supplementation, food and movement. Now this is going to vary wildly from person to person. 
I'm just going to level with you right now. I don't have like a one size fits all answer for this. There's rarely like a one size fits all. You'll notice a lot of the recommendations that I give are pretty common sense shit, right? I'm not trying to like recreate the wheel here from a broad perspective, but a lot of things when person to person can vary wildly, whether it's PMDD or thyroid issues and things like that, because again, every single person is different. That's why like, even on the last episode, one of the questions was, what are some hormone and gut friendly foods? I'm like, I, it's going to depend on the individual because everybody responds to things differently. And I can't give like a blanket answer for that type of information. Um, I can just give some sort of recommendations. Now, obviously, you know, again, and even again, even with my clients, even the ones that have sort of similar issues on paper, their implementation of what we're doing is going to vary from, it's going to be so different from person to person, you guys, but I can give some just general considerations to start digging into. Right. Um, now what I would say is if you have PMDD and you haven't done like a full metabolic workup, right? A full metabolic workup. But if you have questions about what that is, please DM me because it's very likely that your doctor has not pulled a full hormone and metabolic panel on you. Meaning they're skipping a lot of things that can otherwise tell, give us a lot of information as to what's going into the story. Um, I, if somebody ever walks into my door and I do this with certain situations, if somebody says I have X, Y, Z, I'm like, cool, we're getting labs. It's a requirement because I'm not going into this dealing with you blind, right? I need to know exactly what's going on with your body, but we have to recognize that hormones have a hierarchy. So we have to start with the very foundation of the hierarchy, which is the adrenal system, right? This is very heavily involved in the DOM regulation and disruption of sex hormones that cause these massive swings and experiences with PMDD. And so most of the time that is going to be where I start. And again, I think I said this in the last episode, but most individuals that come to me with issues dealing with like their sex hormones, their adrenals are kind of fucked to some degree. <laughs> like they just are because there is a hierarchy to our hormone function. So these things that I'm going to recommend are not sexy. They're not sexy. Okay. And it, this is sort of the downside of dealing with something like PMDD when sort of so the, the effects on the mental health side of things are so severe is that a lot of these things are going to feel very overwhelming. But I would recommend you just pick one, pick one to start with and just sort of slowly build. So doing some kind of fasted walk or very low intensity cardio for like maybe 15, 20 minutes in the morning is a great way to prime your sympathetic nervous system or this rest and digest response, which is the opposite of fight or flight. Focus on meal timing, nutrient pairing, making sure you're getting lots of nutrients in, doing maybe some really jam-packed smoothies, um, eating every few hours right throughout the day um, to help support blood sugar and insulin response, which is going to help you with energy management and cravings. Okay. Which is really big for PMDD flexible strategies and goals for movement, right? Cause rigid structure here can often really backfire from the mental health aspect. So this is why kind of dealing with PMDD, it's going to vary wildly from person to person because what it's, how it's manifesting in the individual and what things feel attainable and what things don't is not going to be the same across the board. Um, we're definitely going to put a major focus on cultivating stress management, which is going to be working on stress management before you're overly stressed. So a lot of people are very reactive with stress management. They're very rarely proactive with stress management where we have to start getting to the behavior and building the habit of supporting stress on a daily basis before shit hits the fan. Okay. Major focus also on food quality and nutrients. Okay. Nutrient deficiencies due to anxiety, depression, hormonal birth control, those medications are real and can really make things worse over time. So if you have to continue compensating, oh, and as they get worse, you have to continue compensating 
for those worsened symptoms with even more medication. And so it's just this like vicious circle, right? So supplementation is likely going to be necessary in this situation at the very, very least, a solid multivitamin and a DHA EPA. I'm going to leave my two go-tos for those in the link in the sh- in links in the show notes. And then further supplementation likely recommended on a case-by-case basis with lab work and biofeedback to, again, see exactly where somebody is, right? What kind of, do we need to do something very targeted for a short amount of time? Um, how is the hepatic system looking like? Where, where's, where's liver function? Things like that, that we really need to look at that can play a huge role in getting the sex hormones regulated. So it's interesting how when we're like trying to regulate sex hormones, we're not really dealing directly with the sex hormones. We're dealing with all the precursors to our sex hormones because we're trying to actually address the root of the issue and not just slap a bandaid on a wound that is gushing blood. Okay. Perimenopause and postmenopause. How to support it. So I'm going to sound like a broken record here. Stress management, nutrient intake, balanced movement routine, and support nutrient deficiencies. Yeah. Now again, very basic at its, at its, at its, uh, at its, you know, biggest overview, how this looks from person to person, again, is going to vary wildly, especially depending on lab work. Um, you know, if you're somebody that's on hormonal birth control and you're sort of, in, you, you're maybe in, in a situation where you might get off hormonal birth control and still have a cycle for maybe a year or two, or you just get off hormonal birth control and you don't have a cycle. Um, menopause being specifically this, um, you've gone, you're sort of in the mid forties ish, and you've gone a year without a cycle that, and, and lab work will also tell, um, menopause, right. And it's not a bad thing. Now this is too, where there's a couple different pathways that you can take. Um, but if you're on hormonal birth control and you don't really need to be, I would recommend just getting off because what you would maybe want to look into besides the stress management, nutrient intake, balanced movement routine, and supporting nutrient deficiencies okay, is going to be potentially supporting with hormone replacement therapy, which is not the same. So replacing bioidentical hormones is not the same as synthetic hormonal birth control because the birth control is synthetic. It is fake ass shit, fake ass shit, fake ass shit. But if you are uh, going into menopause or you're perimenopausal, it's appropriate to look into potentially replacing with bioidentical hormones because your body doesn't produce things the same way. You're no longer ovulating, so you're not going to be um, producing progesterone at the same rate or the same level, and that can really have some issues. The type of estrogen your body starts to produce changes, um, and you're going to want to maybe get that addressed. So really that's the best way to do it. Um, managing sleep is going to be really big here because, um, you know, just comfort with sleep and temperature body regulations. Um, you're going to really just want to manage sleep, energy recovery. Those are going to be things you're going to want to want to keep an eye on and be flexible with how you support it. Right. There's no sense in beating yourself up because your body can't recover the same way. If you're sleeping like shit multiple nights a week, because you're dealing with fucking hot flashes, right? Your, your body's just going through some changes. So we adapt, we dodge, duck, and dive, and then we move on to the next thing. Um, and you just work around it. You just work around it and give yourself grace and space and make sure that you have a solid medical team supporting you and that you're advocating for yourself. Um, but those are things to look into. That's that's what I would recommend. That's what I'd recommend. So you, you, you as a human and what your body needs and the basics is not going to change a whole lot, but you might look into some other options just to help fill in the gaps so that you don't feel so shitty. 
All right. Somebody asked, what is insulin resistance? Which is a great question. And seeing has how, like I kind of mentioned earlier in the episode, functional nutrition is starting to trend and become just more prevalent, which is really good. And that means things like insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, weight loss resistance. Those are all coming up to be conversations and people are going, huh, is that me? Which is good because then they can start getting the answers that they need in order to start seeing the results that they are so desperately wanting to see. And not always necessarily with weight loss, but like, let's be real. People just get sick, sick and fucking tired of feeling tired and bloated and swollen and just blah. They want to feel energized, right? They want to feel good. They want to recover. They want to be able to partake in physical activities and social activities and not feel completely drained at the end of the day, right? So let's talk about the basics of blood sugar and insulin. You eat blood sugar spikes. Your body releases insulin to lower that blood sugar. Um, that blood sugar, that sugar gets uh, from, the, from the food gets converted into glucose, which gets stored into the body into primarily the liver and the muscles for energy and your brain uses, uh, this is why I say carbs are literally brain food because your brain relies on that glucose storage, um, specifically from the liver for (laughs) basic daily functions. So (laughs) now there's also something called glucagon, which helps keep blood sugar levels elevated. So it's, you know, the inverse of insulin. It's also released by the pancreas. Um, so in a healthy individual, this balance of hormones and functions allows glucose to be stored and uses energy. And then when we're running low, on food and readily available glucose, we have glucon being released um, from uh, during times where glucose is low. This helps keep energy managed and the storage of energy and glucose primarily in the liver and the muscles. Now, um, here's where people don't come for me with pitchforks. Okay, I'm just going to help with some basics here. Insulin resistance develops primarily as a lifestyle issue. Now, if you Google it, This is what kind of drives me nuts. It's said to be primarily an issue for people who are overweight. Now, I will tell you, I have seen firsthand body size does not directly correlate to somebody being at risk for insulin resistance because it doesn't matter if you are by medical standards consider overweight due to your BMI or whatever, you can experience insulin resistance at any body size and any body shape because it is a lifestyle issue Usually what ends up happening is too many calories overall or a diet that is too low in nutrients and high in processed sugars or a standard American diet essentially means that there's too much glucose. It cannot be stored in the muscles and the liver. So it goes back into the bloodstream, which causes the pancreas to release more insulin, which kind of eventually what happens is that pancreas is pushing out this insulin and it's pushing out this insulin to help keep the blood sugar down because you're eating too many processed sugars and not enough nutrients and things are kind of out of whack. Then eventually those tissues stop responding to the insulin response and you end up in a state of chronically elevated blood sugar. But your body's also still releasing glucagon, which again, just keeps blood sugar elevated. So this kind of goes from insulin resistance into into metabolic syndrome into type 2 diabetes, right? Now, weight loss resistance can occur here. So let's say you're somebody who is in what would be considered, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a total dick, but let's say you're looking at somebody and they do not look like they would be dealing with insulin resistance, right? Because... People assume that if you're overweight, only overweight people deal with insulin resistance if you are in a larger body. That's not true. Let's say you are not in a larger body, you would not be considered overweight, and you are potentially dealing with insulin resistance. What ends up happening is you deal with high levels of inflammation, you look inflamed, your face looks puffy, you're retaining water, you're um, dealing with potentially some additional weight gain, which could be anywhere from 20, 30, 40 pounds that just kind of comes out of seemingly nowhere, 
right? But you don't exercise, you don't eat enough nutrients, and you're in this now state of weight loss resistance. Again, this can happen at any body size, at any body weight. And that's what I want to make very clear, (laughs) that even if you're not somebody who would traditionally be considered overweight, or you are in a smaller body by society standards, you can still deal with this if you are not eating a well-balanced food intake with high levels of nutrients, exercising, and managing stress. Okay, so that, that's what insulin resistance is. And so then event, you just end up in this state of chronic inflammation <laughs> and you just feel like shit, you're inflamed. And then subsequently this can lead to other issues, okay? Now, what does insulin resistance have to do with PCOS and kind of how do you deal with it? Um, uh, now, you don't have to have PCOS to have insulin resistance and not all PCOS is insulin resistant, but there is a large number of individuals who have PCOS who do have insulin resistance. And I would deal with insulin resistance with somebody with PCOS more or less the same way that I would deal with somebody who has insulin resistance that is not dealing with PCOS. Um, So um, just because insulin resistance, again, is a common contraindication of PCOS does not mean that it's necessarily a correlation. Okay, correlation does not equal causation. Um, And one one thing that it might be is because sometimes if you have um, high androgens with PCOS, this can cause you know, insulin levels to remain elevated after a certain period of time. And then again, your tissues start to become desensitized to that insulin output. Um, now meal timing, nutrient intake, improving nutrient absorption, eating windows, uh, keto with a reverse diet. Okay. I'm going to go into that one in a second, monitoring blood sugar, fasting and postprandial, which means post eating, um, and exercise are huge. Okay. Specifically exercise is huge because the more muscle you have, right? So weightlifting, the more muscle you have more room for glucose to be stored, reducing the amount of blood sugar and glucose entering into your bloodstream, as well as stress management because elevated cortisol can exacerbate blood sugar management. Chronically elevated cortisol can lead to high levels of blood sugar, right? So those two go hand in hand. Now, why do I mention keto? Okay. Now I don't hate keto. I actually did an entire podcast episode on it. It can be a really great, um, strategy to use for somebody keto or low carb diet. Um, if we're dealing with high levels of inflammation, insulin resistance, potentially metabolic syndrome, even type two diabetes, but then you eventually have to come out of it. You're not meant to stay there, right? You're not meant to stay there long-term. Um, and I would not do this unsupervised. I'm just telling you that right now. If you feel like you might need to do it, you need to hire somebody to help you to get you out of it effectively because otherwise you could cause more problems than you're solving with this whole situation. Now, here's the here's the non-sexy part with dealing with insulin resistance. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. You got to implement some things and then you got to stick with it. It's not going to likely be fixed or addressed, you know, fully in two to three weeks or even months. This is a long haul fix because it took you a long time to get there. And a permanent lifestyle change must occur in order to reverse it. A permanent lifestyle change must occur. So this is not something where, again, we're gonna talk about, since somebody asked next, is Ozempic good for weight loss with insulin resistant PCOS or just insulin resistance or weight loss resistance in general? Um, So now, this is again where I say, you know, we're dealing, we're we're making adjustments with meal timing and nutrient intake, and then we're gonna stick with it for a few weeks and then reevaluate. And then maybe make a change. And then we're going to also work on your digestive health and then make a couple changes here and then wait. And all the meantime, I'm collecting all this data from you on a daily basis. If you're working with me and you're dealing with this, you're giving me your fasted blood glucose in the morning. We're monitoring energy levels. I'm not just looking at your food logs and your exercise logs. We're going deep 
into the data to see exactly how your body is responding because we can usually tell if you're responding well to something before the scale moves down based on all that biofeedback and that information. And that tells me that we, we either need to wait, hurry up and wait and keep letting things do its job or we need to change a few things, right? And a lot of times it's hurry up and wait and you have to stick it out and you just have to stick it out, okay? By the way, red flag if your coach is changing your plan every single week. You should not be changing your movement and food plans even for healthy individuals on a weekly basis. Um, I don't make severe changes to my clients' plans on a weekly basis, very rarely. Usually we're sticking with something for several weeks, potentially months, um, depending on what we're doing before we start making changes because the body needs time to adapt and adjust and to see. And if something's working too, why are we going to change it if it's working? Um, you know, it's just one of those things. Okay. Now, is Ozempic, semaglutide, et cetera, good for weight loss with insulin-resistant PCOS, metabolic syndrome, just regular insulin resistance, et cetera? And I'm going to say, not if you have other issues. <laughs> now, this is going to piss a lot of people off. If you can't adhere to a nutrition, movement, or stress management plan, just basics, you have absolutely no business doing any kind of weight loss injections because the injections will not fix the thing that caused the problems in the first place. They do not address the root of the issue. They only mask the symptoms and you might lose some weight. Now, the reason you lose some weight is one. Now your body is, um, we have blood sugar is coming down because these, these are glucagon inhibitors. So this is helping blood sugar come down, right? Because in insulin resistance, not only is your blood sugar continuously elevated, but your body's still pumping out glucagon. So you just end up in this chronic state of elevated blood sugar. So you inhibit that glucagon. It allows your blood sugar to be better managed, which then you're able to lose some weight likely. Um, but here's the problem is it also suppresses your appetite, but we, again, metabolism, we talked about this in part one, you eat less, your metabolism slows down. What happens when you come off the Ozempic and you haven't been eating as much because you're just not hungry. And I'm doing a whole, I'm doing a post coming up soon that your hunger signals are wrong. I won't get into it today, but people are always like, I'm not hungry. I'm not hungry. I'm like, your hunger signals are fucking wrong. I don't care if you're not hungry. You need to eat because we need to get your body functioning well again. You want to feel good? Yes or no? Like, I just want to, I just want to be like, come on, people. Your hunger signals are completely unreliable because you are, you are dysregulated as fuck. You are dysregulated as fuck. And I don't care about your hunger signals. We need to retrain your body to feel good again. Otherwise you're not, you're going to still have issues. So what happens is people go on this semaglutide. You guys can see I'm going to be really fired up about this because I'm getting, I'm real pissed about the fucking industry yet because this is, this is, I'll get there in a second. <sighs> Deep breaths, Elena. What happens is you start to eat less and your blood sugar comes down. All of a sudden you lose all this weight, right? Now what happens is you suddenly go off the semaglutide for whatever reason, because usually the people that are handing this shit out like candy and making a fucking profit off of it aren't monitoring you effectively or supporting you in the lifestyle changes that need to be in place in order to maintain the fucking results of this drug that you're pumping through your body. They're being completely irresponsible with it. And it drives me nuts because then I end up with people that need to be fixed by it and they feel terrible. They feel terrible. I have clients that have gone through this because semaglutide, while it's new on the fucking med spa market, it's new on the med spa market. It is not a new drug. Wagovi, Ozempic. This shit's been around for years to treat diabetes. It's been used to treat diabetes. It is a diabetes drug. So I do not think that it has a place in somebody's weight loss strategy unless, again, 
You have no business taking it until you can show that you can adhere to the nutrition, movement, stress management, lifestyle changes that have to be in place in order to maintain the results. And you're willing to exercise and maintain your food intake, despite you feeling like you have to stuff yourself and force yourself to eat to make sure that your metabolism stays where it needs to go. Otherwise, you're just taking your metabolism and then you're going to go off the, the, the injections and you're going to gain the weight back. And you're still dealing with inflammation. Your sex hormones also are still fucked. Your thyroid is still fucked. Your adrenals are still fucked. You didn't fix anything. You just made it worse. So trust me, I'm not mad at anybody who's considering it. I think it's a great question. I'm mad at the people who are profiting off of individuals who are seeking an answer for something that is so personal and such an important outcome for them. And they're going to be the ones that end up hurt by it. And somebody else is lining their pockets at somebody else's expense. And that drives me absolutely fucking nuts. Okay. So, all right. Last question. Somebody asked a great question. How to check for nutrient deficiencies in lab work. <laughs> now, it's not actually something you really look for in lab work. At least I don't. And there's not like a ton of super, like you can get certain vitamins and things like drawn and see where you're at. But looking at someone's biofeedback in addition to like a hormone, a metabolic panel, and what their eating habits are is usually going to tell me a lot more about their nutrient deficiencies and some blood work that they don't really need. So um, that's what I would recommend. Uh, addressing nutrient deficiencies is definitely going to be like a part of like the basic step one, step two for most individuals with hormone imbalance, regardless of what that imbalance is. But it's not going to be something that's the end all be all because people's hormone imbalances manifest physically in different ways. So again, like I said, you can draw labs for certain vitamins and stuff like that, but doing a metabolic or hormone panel and then looking up biofeedback and then doing an audit of your lifestyle, food intake, stress management, et cetera, is going to be much more effective than trying to address an individual nutrient deficiency because that's only going to go so far in managing whatever it is that you have going on. You likely need sort of a slow lifestyle 180 um, compared to what you're doing now. And again, I say slow 180 because I feel like going in and trying to upend everything in your life all at once is a recipe for failure. I like to change things and switch, you know, change everything and modulate stuff as we go so that all of a sudden someone wakes up one day and they're like, wow, I live my life completely differently than I did before. And I like didn't even realize it was happening until all of a sudden it happened and I ever, I just, I'm a different person now and it's good. So yeah. All right. Now to lighten the mood after I like went on my rampage <laughs> about semaglutide and ozempic and injections and people that are taking advantage of individuals who are desperately seeking answers and results. <sighs> journaling. Somebody asked me, my friend Elise, who is Glory Plans on Instagram, and she is, um, she's like one of my good planner friends. It's just nice to have another friend on the interwebs who like enjoys journaling and enjoys notebooks and enjoys pens and things like that. Cause like we talk all the time about our planners and our spreads and like what, what materials we're enjoying and like what stickers and washi tape and stuff we're using. It's just fun because this is such like a stress relief hobby for me, journaling. I have um, I have a reading journal. I have a Spanish journal. I have a everyday carry journal I've got, which is my planner that I carry with me every single day. I have a journal journal, which is where I write affirmations, gratitude. I do like my stream of conscious journaling in there just about like my day. Um, I do that. I do one every single day or like every other day, something like that. But I literally have for 2023 
a journal entry every single day. And I started this back in November and it's like been life-changing for me. Um, I've got a, um, health and wellness journal. I've got a scratch journal. I've got a journal for, I've got a planner set up, a notebook set up for the book that I'm writing. Um, and I've got another sort of scratch journal. And then I have like an end of day business reflections journal. And then I've got a journal for my D and D campaigns. Um, yeah, I have a lot of journals and planners and so it's become a hobby for me, but it's also become a form of stress management sort of started when I got into bullet journaling back in October, be in it as a way to help manage my ADHD. So you guys, if you've been following me for a while, you know, I've been on this sort of like months long journey, um, years long journey, really after my mental health really took a massive nosedive in like 2021. And just learning more about myself, seeking, you know, going to therapy, trying out different medications, trying out different things, different strategies to help manage my ADHD, anxiety, and depression. Um, and journaling is one of those things that really kind of helps ground, it helps ground me when I feel like I'm spiraling. And the more I do it and the more outlets that I have for it, the more grounded and balanced I feel because it's like me being able to download my brain so that things aren't so messy. So that's how I got into it. And now subsequently, I love like fountain pens and like stickers and things like that. So my favorites um, lately have been like, I love Stalogy notebooks. I love my my Kaweco sport pens. I love Ferris wheel ink press. Um, and I don't really post like a ton of like my journaling stuff, like on Instagram from like a social perspective. Um, but it is something that like from a productivity perspective, like I said, in the last, um, the part one episode, I'm hoping to maybe get into doing some of that from, for YouTube, just as a fun outlet. I'm setting up my planner spreads weekly anyway. So it's, it's, you know, it's in theory, in theory, it's not that hard to like sit there and like turn on the camera and record it. But then again, too, you probably heard my spiel. If you listen to the last episode that I lost, my memory card and I had to get a new memory card and I don't even think I finished that story thanks to my ADHD but then I ordered some two some new memory cards and then lo and behold the day that the new memory cards arrived in the mail I found the old memory card for my camera <laughs> so I'm hoping to get back into that because it's something that I set up and I do once a week anyway and it's really very like low effort for me and it's a good creative outlet and it has been very beneficial for my productivity and stress management and I've also started to give myself permission to switch up systems, to switch things up, to switch up my methods, to suit wherever my brain is at that day. As I like to say a lot lately, I just kind of follow the dopamine and I stop fighting myself on how things get done. You know, I'll fall into a system and then eventually for some reason, one day that system will not feel like it's working anymore. And that's part of why I liked bullet journaling because it offers a lot of flexibility with like your planner layout and like things like that. So actually bullet journal kind of, but I usually use dated planners or like more structured planners. Um, although I think what I'm going to end up doing is doing like a series of undated notebooks so that I can switch book. Cause I get antsy every three, four months I get antsy and I want to be in a new notebook. And sometimes then I get nostalgic and then I want to go back to a notebook, but then I have all these blank pages. So, and then I kind of feel guilt. Oh, no, you don't need to feel guilty about having blank pages. I think it would be kind of fun to just have like a whole mess of undated notebooks. And then I can just hop in and out of them and set up them and set them up in like new planner covers with like, I have like, you know, fun, like pencil boards and like strategies and like new different pens and stuff like that. And just really, again, follow the dopamine in a way that's productive, but that also soothes me and makes me feel good. Now it's funny because my actual journal is in a planner. It's in like a, it's a Sterling common planner. 
where at the very beginning of the notebook, there's all of the month layouts. And then the second section of the notebook is the weekly vertical layout. And then the third section of the notebook is enough daily, enough blank pages for one page per day. And that's where that one page per day. So in the monthly section, I write down a memory of the day. And then in the weekly section, I write down three to four affirmations a day. I use the app I am because I cannot be fucked to come up with affirmations on myself. <laughs> like I, again, low effort here. And then I decorate everything with like washi tape or stickers and I change it up every single week or I use a different ink or a different pen and that's really fun. And then same thing for my journal pages. I will use sometimes more decoration, sometimes minimal decoration. It doesn't have any rules. Just that someday, one that once a day, I take 10 or 15 minutes to sit down and download my brain onto paper. And again, that's part of that proactive stress management that I've started to cultivate for myself. And so it's a really important part of my day. And that's how I kind of got into journaling and planning as sort of like a hobby, which I know seems weird, but it's definitely fun. So maybe you guys will start seeing some of that content soon. All right, you guys, um, I am so happy that we did this Q&A. This was so much fun. This, this episode is now kind of going on. I think we're now in like minute 39. So I'm going to go ahead and um, end this recording. But thank you guys so much for hanging out. It's been such a good time. Um, please leave a rating and review. It helps the um, podcast overlords send out the, uh, the this via the algorithm, right? There's algorithms for everything nowadays. So leave a rating and review. And if there is something specific you want me to talk about as an episode, seriously, DM me on Instagram. I'm a real human. I actually answer my DMs. And I would love to hear your ideas or thoughts about what you want to hear on the podcast next. All right, you guys, you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the What the Funk podcast. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. And don't forget to take a screenshot. Tag me on Instagram. My handle is at elena.m.fit. I would love to hear what you want to hear on the podcast. I do respond to DMs. I would love to talk with all of you. I'm so excited for you being here today. Thank you so much for the support. And I will see you next time. Just a quick disclaimer for the information found in the What the Funk podcast. I am not a licensed medical professional, mental health professional, or registered dietitian. The advice and recommendations given out on this channel and on this podcast are not intended to diagnose or treat any kind of medical condition or mental health condition. If you do think you have a medical condition, please speak with your medical provider. Please consult your medical provider before implementing any kind of supplement regimen or exercise regimen or nutrition regimen into your lifestyle, as well as be aware that listening to this podcast does not constitute a coach-client relationship. Thank you guys so much.